Hey folks, Preet here. Another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling that could gut the Voting Rights Act, holding that only the federal government, not private citizens, could challenge voting practices that discriminate on the basis of race. In other news, the judge overseeing Donald Trump's Georgia prosecution declined to send one of Trump's co-defendants to jail over recent social media posts targeting witnesses. Later this week, the judge will hold a hearing on Trump's motions to dismiss the charges. Joyce Vance and I discuss all that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other exclusive content, become a member of Cafe Insider. Right now, through December 3rd, you can get 50% off the annual membership price for the first year. Just head to cafe.com slash informed. That's cafe.com slash informed. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. The big question is that people must be asking, well, the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was passed six decades ago. And you might be wondering, well, how many times has it been litigated by private litigants who the Eighth Circuit now suddenly, six decades later, say there's no private right of action, they don't have a right to sue? And the answer is, Joyce, hundreds of times. And how can it be the case that hundreds of times, including in the Supreme Court of the United States, Hundreds of times, it has been assumed, even if not decided directly, so assumed that there's a private right of action that it has not resulted in the overturning or rejection of a lawsuit on this basis until now. Can you explain that? So this is such a good point. First, let me say, I think the court gets this wrong, but it's helpful to understand what the district court did. As as you pointed out, this is not a substantive decision about the merits of the case. This just says the case can't go forward because these plaintiffs can't file a lawsuit under Section 2. And the district court makes a point of saying, and the Eighth Circuit affirms them in this regard, you cannot look at this lawsuit without dealing with the question of whether there's a private right of action under Section 2 first, because it's essentially jurisdictional. So what they're saying by implication is that in these hundreds of other cases where courts have permitted Section 2 actions brought by private parties to go forward, those courts somehow miss this argument. I mean, every judge knows that this is jurisdictional. And we've got, you know, just this one little judge in, you know, one small place who suddenly decides that he knows better than everybody else, including the Supreme Court, and that there's no private right of action. And as you said, there's a dissent on the Eighth Circuit panel. And the dissent comes from a Bush appointee, makes an explicit point of saying, courts have considered this. And no court has ever found this way before. And we should not take it upon ourselves to, you know, create this massive change in the law unless the Supreme Court speaks about it. It's just so bizarre. I'm going to keep emphasizing how bizarre it is. So people understand, parties are not stupid. And when you've had scores and scores and hundreds of lawsuits, and people have not tended to bring up this issue of standing when they oppose the lawsuit, that tells you something about what the understanding of the statute has been. It is also the case that at the district court level, a judge can decide on his or her own, even if the matter wasn't raised by the parties, can say, hey, wait a minute, are you sure there's a private right of action at all? And to my knowledge, that didn't happen. So 
one of the things that's happening here is there's there appears to be on the part of some Supreme Court justices and obviously some other judges as well, including the district court judge in this matter, have some hostility to the Voting Rights Act. And a little bit of the door to this was opened by Justice Gorsuch in a case called Brnovich that we may have talked about before that relates to the Voting Rights Act from two years ago. And Justice Gorsuch writes in this case from two years ago, and you can see what the cascading effect can be, quote, our cases have assumed without deciding that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 furnishes private right of action. And he goes on to say, lower courts have treated this as an open question. Do you think that opened the door for a, um, an aggressive activist judge to find that? Yeah, I mean, I think the door was already open, to be honest, because conservatives have been looking for a way to put an end to Section 2 actions. But of course, Gorsuch is in the minority there. You know, at best, when Gorsuch writes that, he's writing for himself and two other justices, Alito and Thomas. There's been no indication that any of the other judges think there are serious questions in this regard. And in fact, last term in the Alabama redistricting case, Milligan, five justices, including the chief justice and Justice Kavanaugh, they joined the majority in permitting a Section 2 action brought by private litigants to go forward with no question about whether those private litigants were entitled to bring the case, that seems to suggest that the current Supreme Court is okay with a private right of action. And that makes what this district judge did even more interesting, because in the dissent, the Eighth Circuit judge who dissents points out that it wasn't the parties who raised this issue. The judge raised it, at which point the Arkansas defendant said, oh, yeah, by the way, we agree. And, and that's how this issue gets raised in the district court. Right. So it's such an obscure technical point that litigants who are aggressive and take strong positions and have lawyers take strong positions didn't on their own come up with a fundamental dispositive argument shows the degree to which not just courts, as Gorsuch points out, but also litigants on both sides of the question have assumed and operated on the basis that the Voting Rights Act does contain a private right of action. Now, people might be saying, well, I don't know why you're so discombobulated over this. This is not even as bad as some of the other recent decisions, including on affirmative action in the Supreme Court and abortion in the Supreme Court, because there, it wasn't an assumption that there was or was not a right. There was a fully established legal position that the Supreme Court just reversed. So what's the big deal? If the Supreme Court can reverse something that is a longstanding understood principle or right or process, what's the big deal in finally, out of the blue, all of a sudden, the Eighth Circuit and perhaps the Supreme Court will follow, deciding that something that has been an open question should be decided against the assumption that everyone has had up to that point? Yeah, and of course, that's not how our system works because some of these weighty decisions are reserved for higher courts, and especially the Supreme Court. Here's a good way of understanding that. In the 11th Circuit, there's something called the prior panel rule. And that means that one panel in the 11th Circuit won't reverse an opinion that was decided by a prior panel. In order to reverse, you would have to throw that to the entire circuit sitting on bonk, all the active judges in the 11th Circuit. That's the only way you can reverse existing law. The idea that a district judge could reverse an 11th Circuit ruling is laughable. It's a non-starter, and the 11th Circuit would slap that judge pretty hard on appeal. 
that's what you have here. You've got one judge in Arkansas saying, I know better than the Supreme Court. And that's just not how it works. And the ruling from the Arkansas judge, and this analysis is adopted by the Eighth Circuit, I think this is pretty telling. The judge says that after reviewing the text, history, and structure of the Voting Rights Act, the district court concluded that private parties cannot enforce Section 2. So the text of the law, the history of the law, the structure of the Voting Rights Act— This reminds me a whole lot of the Second Circuit jurisprudence we're seeing, where the Supreme Court keeps referring to, you know, history and what we were doing at the time of the founding of the country means that we need to protect all of these guns. Here, this appeal to history falls really flat because as we've been discussing, the history of litigation under the Voting Rights Act has been one of private rights of action. And if you want to talk about text and structure of the Voting Rights Act, there's some interesting legislative history here, too. Before we get to that, another question that might be on people's minds is, well, okay, great. In this case, why was it left to a private litigant to proceed on what is now come to be appreciated as a dubious ground for relief? Because it was an open question that there was a private right of action. Why didn't the attorney general, in this case, I believe it would, would have been Merrick Garland, join the suit? then it would not have been dismissed, correct? Yeah, this is a really good question. And there's, I think, more to the answer than than meets the eye. Because a lot of Section 2 cases involve gerrymandering, they're struck on this cycle of new census data. You know, every 10 years, there's a census. Following that new census data, states redraw their voting maps, and then we're off to the races with challenges about gerrymandering. Well, The Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, which does these cases, has limited resources, and maybe they can pursue one or two at a time, but what they can't do is deal with challenges in 15 or 20 different states, all happening simultaneously. I mean, that's just a practical resource picture. That's why there are people like Mark Elias and Eric Holder who have entities that take on litigation in these cases on behalf of people who are having their rights taken away by these maps as they're drawn. And it's just a practical reality. But here's an additional dynamic that really troubles me. I went back and tried to find Section 2 cases that had been brought when Republicans held the White House and controlled the Justice Department. And it looks to me like the Section 2 challenges happen almost exclusively when there's a Democrat in the White House. You know, I found one challenge, and it's sort of ironic, a a Section 2 case that started in 2003, was brought in 2006 during the Bush administration. And that case was the work of the current assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division, Kristen Clark, when she was a line prosecutor in the Civil Rights Division. But it's safe to say that if you limited Section 2 cases to only DOJ, then you would have gaps of many years, potentially including census years, when these cases simply would not be brought if private parties could not bring them. So the consequence of this is, in the immediate term, it will almost certainly go to the Supreme Court because there have been other circuits, including the Fifth Circuit, that has ruled the opposite way. And when you have one circuit ruling one way on a concrete issue of law, and another circuit ruling a different way, we call that, in our business, a circuit split, And circuit splits create uncertainty, and it means that there's not one standard of justice. So if you happen to have a cause 
of action in Texas that's identical to a cause of action in Arkansas, the theory goes there should be a similar result. And so when a split happens, one or more cases will ultimately wind their way or wind their way, depending on your preference, to the Supreme Court, and it will decide. But in, in the meantime, in the Eighth Circuit at least, that's going to mean a huge diminution in the number of these cases brought, because as you say, there's a resource problem for the Attorney General of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Maybe DOJ prioritizes work in the Eighth Circuit for the next little bit, but this will take time to resolve. The ACLU is litigating the Arkansas case. They at least have not told us if they've decided whether they'll go to the full-length Eighth Circuit, that en banc proceeding with every judge, or whether they'll apply straight to the Supreme Court. You know, but these are cases that have impact with upcoming elections, and it needs to move quickly. So should we talk a little bit about what the basis was for the Eighth Circuit saying no private right of action? The first thing, and everyone learns this at the beginning of law school, and then you find out in the real world it doesn't always work the way that you're told in law school, because you made a reference a minute ago to legislative history. So we, we need to explain a few things, right? So the first thing... Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash informed and sign up for 50% off the annual membership price for the first year. That's cafe.com slash informed. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.